for today's scripture reading. The great book of Romans, the 8th chapter, beginning to read at the 18th verse. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning and travailed together until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts of men knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that in everything God works for good with those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Amen and amen. A question that is often asked of every preacher is, Reverend, where do you get your sermons? Contrary to what some people believe, there is no central headquarters who does all of the groundwork and mimeographs them and sends them down ready to be preached. Granted, there are some publishing houses that have some type of a service, but I am not a subscriber. Every preacher has his own method. Ideas for the sermons which I preach come from my Bible study, from reading all types of books, magazines, theological journals, and psychology books. In recent years, the last three, matter of fact, I have been receiving inspiration for sermons in the middle of the night, in that quite often now, as for the last three years happened, 
In the middle of the night, I'll be rather rudely awakened from a sound sleep, being disturbed and by a verse of scripture, an outline, a thought. And I hope it doesn't come as a surprise to too many of you, but oftentimes you give me ideas for sermons. Ten days ago, I received a letter, two-page letter, from a young man of this congregation who now is teaching in one of our colleges to the north of us. He had heard the broadcast two weeks ago, the worship service, and was commenting on his feelings and impressions and thankfulness for the James John instinct. And then he went on to say that he's a jogger, and every day he jogs five miles. Can you imagine it? I didn't think that boy had it in him. Five miles. And he says that as he jogs, for some time now, his been, he has been impressed with words of Scripture as to how life can be compared to a race, to a runner. And not only did he give that suggestion, but he outlined the whole sermon for me. And he offered to sit down and talk with me any time that I would like. And we wrote back and said, thank you for the sermon, we'll talk. And right now, we're going to take that sermon idea and put it into the drawer of my desk, which I can just about get shut, the one that holds sermon ideas. Two years ago, a man of this congregation, one who has impressed me greatly with his vitality and with his strength and his dedication to his profession and for his positive outlook on life, he said to me, Dick, he says, there's so much trouble in the world today, I, I wish people would learn how to look for the good instead of for the bad. And he said, Dick, I think you ought to preach a sermon on how people can look for the good that God is creating in the world today. And I said, good idea. And that night when I went home, I took one of the forms that I used and I jotted down the ideas immediately. My favored verse of scripture, Romans 8.28, came to mind, and that was two years ago. And since then, I have, looking through my file, come across those ideas. I have expanded them and thought much about them, but the time never seemed ripe or right for the preaching of that sermon. And now comes the advent of this new bulletin cover. And for some reason or another, maybe some of you are responsible for that, God has been leading me to preach on this text and on this topic on this particular day in history. And about the middle of this week, I wish that he had not called me to do so. Because I can honestly tell you, I have not for a very, very long time suffered so much or worked so long and hard on a sermon as I have on this one. I would have to say to my friend who wants to know and wants all of us to know how to look for the good, two things, and each thing has two parts. 
First of all, I would say it is not easy at the time of the experience, the trial, the tribulation, or the temptation to see the power of God working for the good. It's very difficult to see with the human eye. And that is because, A, God's ways of working are somewhat different than our understanding of how he works. I'm very grateful for the great prophet Isaiah who gave us that insight. You know, he is the one who says that the Lord said to him, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. And just as the heavens are high above the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than yours. And what I hear God saying through his word is that sometimes God works differently than we would like to see him work. Or think he should work. You see, God works most of the time very, very quietly. He works continuously. Do you know that God never takes a vacation? works all three shifts every day, never takes a day off. He doesn't even take a coffee break. All the time he's working, continuously, completely, he is thorough. And sometimes he's very slow. And that's hard on us because... We are people who live in an age of anxiety. We are oriented to the computer. We like the instant replay, and we are people who want quick, instantaneous answers. And sometimes it upsets us that God works so slowly. And therefore, instead of allowing God to work out according to his schedule, we err in trying to interpret what God is doing and how he is working in the world at that particular moment and specifically in that person's life, in that particular situation. Now we err because oftentimes we attribute to God some causes for which he is not responsible. You've heard the person who follows that particular kind of theology and thinking who thinks he knows or she knows how God works. So when they see a person that has gone out and gotten into an automobile, an individual who has had too many drinks of alcohol or has popped too many pills and that person drives an automobile carelessly and an accident happens, and tragedy is the result, you know how that person responds. That person who thinks he or she knows how God works, it's the will of God, they say. There are other people who, who when they see someone who insists on inflicting himself or herself with some neurotic illness 
that God never expected or wanted them to have, they say, well, you see, it's the will of God. Or of an individual who they see running around that has a desire that is very destructive, but runs around unleashed, they excuse it by saying, it's the will of God. I'm sorry, I don't buy such answers. To me, that's a bunch of mistruth, and I have the Bible to back me up. For the Bible never says that God caused all things to happen. It does say we know that in everything God works for the good, but nowhere does it say God causes all things to happen. He is not the author and the creator of evil. But rather, you see, the Bible says that there is a force in this world that does cause evil things to happen, and that force is called evil, and it is brought into this world through individual who commit sin, sin whose symptoms are selfishness, self-centeredness, and stubbornness. But even though God does not create those evil tragedies to happen, even though they are caused by the forces of evil, God still does not quit working, and he is working always to bring some solution out of that tragedy, and the most important of all, he is always, always working to save the sinner. We see this best on what happened on that night that our Lord was crucified. Friday night, and the disciples literally believed that Jesus had quit working. He hadn't quit work. He was only working differently than they thought he should be working. But they thought that God on that afternoon on Golgotha should have come down with his legions of angels and released Jesus and come and tramped out all of the evil. But God didn't work that way. So consequently, they thought God was taking a break, or he was asleep, or he was on a holiday, or had gone berserk. They felt betrayed, robbed, deceived. And that was a bad Black Friday. But God was working. He wasn't working the way they thought he should be working, but he was working. And you see, it was only later on that they recognized his working. It was after Easter and Ascension and Pentecost that they began to see that on that horrible Friday, God was at work, and he was taking those two pieces of wood put together in the form of the cross, which is the forerunner to our electric chair. That was the way criminals died. And he turned that sight of sin into the sign of salvation. God was working for the good. And even that situation that was caused by the sin, the selfishness, the self-centeredness, and the stubbornness, people like you and me. 
that's why it's so hard at the time to be able to see God working for the good because oftentimes God works differently than do we. That's point A. Point B is it's so hard to see God working for the good because oftentimes God's definition of good is completely different than our definition of good. You ever realize that? When God uses the word good, it is in its constant state. You and I, we like to use it in its relative state. And we use it relatively concerning different things. Let me illustrate. Two years ago, I preached a sermon on the man from Porlock, and in that I told the story, that Chinese parable about the old Chinaman and his son who lived alone in a deserted fort. The only thing they had was one horse, and one day that horse ran away, and all of the Chinese neighbors came out and they said to the Chinaman, oh, we are so sorry. We are so, so sorry for this bad news that you've lost your horse. And the wise old Chinaman said, Oh, so how do you know this is bad news? Sure enough, four weeks later, the wild horse showed up, and with him he brought a whole herd of wild horses. And as the Chinese neighborhood came out again to help this man gather up his new herd, they congratulated him on the good news, and he said with wisdom, How do you know this is good? Three weeks later, the son, in trying to tame one of those wild horses, was thrown, and he broke his leg, and he was a crippled for the rest of his life. And the China people came back, and they expressed their sorrow. And they said they were so sad to hear of the man's and the boy's misfortune. And the old man said, how do you know this is misfortune? Six months later, a Chinese warlord came through the area conscripting every young, strong, armed-bodied boy, man, to go and fight in his private war. And all those fathers and mothers who had lost their Chinese sons to battle came out and said to the old man, we're so happy for you because of your good fortune. And the old Chinaman said, how do you know it is good fortune? And thank goodness that's the end of the parable. <laughs> but you get the feeling it could go on on and on and on and I'm using it to point out that we are never quite sure if good is bad or bad is good because our definition is somewhat different than God's of those two words three weeks ago I went to speak at a spiritual retreat up in the country up in the mountains near Ligonier it was really something three days in the schedule was I was to speak, and it was to be speaking. program was interspersed with all types of, of winter sports. It began to snow early in the week, and the people on the committee were frightened to death. 
They listen to the newscasts, the weather forecasts, and they became frightened because the forecast was bad. They predicted heavy snow the day that we were to go, and they were really frightened because they thought that snow, you see, would be bad. Sure enough, when I went up that night, halfway there it began to snow, and I got to Ligonier already, one inch of snow was on the ground. The people kept coming in. Soon everybody had arrived. That night we went to bed. When we got up the next morning, there were seven additional inches of snow. And you know what the people said? Goody. That went from good in less than 24 hours. That's why it is so hard to be able to see with the human eye God working for the good at the present time. The second thing that I would say to my friend and to you is that if you want to just begin to be able to see God working for the good in every situation, you can do so only through the eyes of faith. The only way. Through the eyes of faith. Notice, the scripture does not say we know that in everything God works for good, period. No, there's no punctuation. It says we know that in everything God works for good with those who love him. You see, it's a conditional verse of scripture. It's qualified. And it is saying that you do not know for sure that God is working for the good in whatever situation you are unless you are loving God. Now that's the key phrase. And loving God, you see, is not as easy as one might think. Loving God does not mean you just come to church once a week, pick up a Bible once a year, and put a big check into the offering plate once a year. No, no. Loving God means far more than that. John says to be able to love God means, first of all, you have to love yourself and above all, love your neighbor. Yes, that person who does not like you you must love him if you are going to love God. John says, if a man says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. That's what the Bible says. He is a liar. For how can you love God whom you have not seen if you cannot love your brother who you do see? The only way that you can just begin to get a glimpse of God working in the good in whatever situation you are in is by having the faith that even when you don't want to you are loving God by loving that neighbor be he friend or foe that you love that brother or sister whether you like them or not that's point A of the second point. Point B is this. You begin to get a glimpse of God working for the good in everything, everything. If in faith you believe that you are called and are responding to that call to his purpose. Which as I interpret it means that as long as there is breath in your body, 
you believe in faith that God has a purpose for you in life. And that purpose is to do good. Micah the prophet says, Hear, O man, the Lord has told you what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God? You see, our, our main reason for living, ladies and gentlemen, is not to look and to judge good or bad in somebody else, but it is to look to make sure that we are doing good ourselves in every situation. It means that following the words of the Good Shepherd and the Good Teacher, we become the Good Samaritan. It means that following those good books of the good news of the Bible, we become good light, good salt, and good fruit. That we let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our good Father in heaven. So what I'm saying in essence is to my friend, to you, and to myself, and that's what makes it so difficult, is if you really want to see God working for the good in everything, no matter what horrible situation that might be, you do it by looking through the eyes of faith and loving your neighbor as yourself and believing that your purpose in life is to do good. Now if you do that and do it every day to the best of your ability, I don't, but the Bible guarantees you that you will begin to see good here on the face of the earth. But I say only begin because you will never really see good in all of its completeness and how God in all of his dimension is working for good until you get to the other side. And I am convinced that the day we get to the other side, we'll be looking into the eyes of the Good Shepherd and as we do so, we're going to be able to see all of our individual lives in retrospect. And just before the good Lord says unto us, Well done, thou good and faithful servant, we will then be able to see and know for the first time and explain O oh Lord, it was you all the time. Now we look through a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we see in part, but then, then we shall fully understand and see. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for helping us wrestle with some of the thorny things in life that look so simple. Father, help us to see 
what good means can do. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the power of His Holy Spirit be kind and good unto you forever and ever.